Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. We'll finish out this first chapter this morning, verses 11 through 24. As we continue walking through this book together. And today we'll be looking at, in the life of Paul, the transforming power of the gospel. Gospel transformation. And we'll see in Paul's life, and it really works this way in anyone's life, that the gospel transforms rebel sinners into redeemed children of God. The gospel transforms rebel sinners into redeemed children of God. So if you have a copy of God's word, I invite you to follow along with me. Galatians 1 verse 11. Paul writes, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you, before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. We closed our time together last week by looking at verse 10. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so Paul sets up this contrasting framework. On the one hand, we have those who live in such fear of the people around them, they're ruled by that fear. They live their lives for the sake of pleasing people. On the other hand, the other picture we have is of those who recognize that at the end of our days, we will all meet an eternal judge and stand before this judge in Christ or apart from Christ. And we live our lives out of a desire to serve and live before this eternal triune God. And it's not that fearing God doesn't allow us to serve people. That's not the point. Because God calls us to reach people, to serve people, to love people. In fact, if you've ever done a study in the New Testament on the one another's, how we should live toward one another, they add up real fast. There's a long list of these. But rather what he's saying is, Fearing God shapes the way we serve people. We can't truly love our neighbor without rightly loving God. And yet loving God then shapes the way we love one another. Uh, with our ministry staff, normally we're working our way through different books. And right now we're working our way through this book. I commend it to you just as a book in general. But in particular, if you ever find yourself struggling with Anxiety about what people think about you or fear of man when people are big and God is small. 
It's a good picture of what life can look like when we fear the people around us. So verse 10 serves as a framework for what we're going to see in our passage today. It sort of introduces us to it. So like Paul, we're called to serve Christ and his gospel. Now, we also have a couple of layers of conversation going on here, as is often the case as you work through the epistles. One is this. Paul is under attack. People are questioning whether he has the true gospel, and they're attacking the gospel by saying he's not a true apostle. So it'd be sort of like this. We have uh, you know, plenty of lawyers. If you need a lawyer, you know, Chris Ramsey, Trip Wiles, T.O. Sanders, our church is well prepared for this. But imagine that you walked into an attorney's office and you saw there hanging on the wall some diplomas. And then you checked and you found out, okay, this person is licensed to practice law in our state. But you began spreading the rumor that this lawyer actually had been disbarred and no longer could practice law in South Carolina. That's a big deal if you're a lawyer. And so if you're that lawyer, you get on the phone and you pull out your credentials and you say, no, no, look here, I am licensed to practice law in this state. And that's exactly what Paul's doing. He's got people attacking his legitimacy as an apostle. Because his apostleship, his big A apostleship, gives him a unique authority in the church. And so on one level, Paul's saying, no, I am licensed to be saying what I'm saying. That's one level of conversation here. But there's a second level. Paul then also, to defend his apostleship, tells us his life story. And he holds up his life, his conversion story, as a model of what the gospel does in our hearts. And so we've got this kind of one big picture kind of early church history argument going on. And then we've got this very personal Paul just telling us details about how he came to know Christ. And so there are aspects of the story that are unique to Paul, and there are other aspects of it that reflect the way God works in the heart of any sinner. And the first thing that Paul introduces us to is the gospel of Christ in verses 11 and 12. And what he's doing here is he's making an argument why we can't preach any other gospel. You see, Paul says we can't preach another gospel because the gospel doesn't belong to us. It doesn't belong to me either. It's the gospel of Christ. And I know sitting in this room this morning, we have hundreds of these. Now, you can see a picture pops up on mine. It doesn't look like yours. Now, imagine that after the service here, there was one sitting on the front pew. And we asked ourselves, well, whose phone is this? We picked it up to look at it. That would be appropriate. But let's say rather than doing that, I walked down right now, found some random person sitting in a pew, I found your phone sitting next to you on the pew, and I picked it up and I stuck it in my pocket. You'd know that's not appropriate. In fact, if you picked up my phone, you could recognize who it is by the picture, but you couldn't open it unless you can guess my passcode. So if you can figure out those six digits, you can get in, but if you can't, you don't. Because you know there's a sense of belonging, a sense of ownership. And it's not appropriate for you to take something that belongs to me and act like it's yours, just like it wouldn't be appropriate for me to take something that belongs to you and act like it's mine. And Paul says, the gospel isn't ours to mess with. It belongs to Jesus. It's the gospel of Christ. We can't change the gospel because the gospel doesn't belong to us. Or as he says it here, it's not man's gospel. 
So Paul tells us how the gospel came to him. Verse 12, I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So the gospel that we find in the scriptures become the measuring stick by which every preached gospel is measured. In other words, if it doesn't line up with this gospel, it's not the real gospel because you cannot change the real gospel. It doesn't belong to us. There's only one gospel. And we know the true gospel as we hold up God's word and measure that gospel according to God's word. Now, we've got our Bibles here in Galatians 1, and I know some of you have those booklets, and so I apologize if you don't have the rest of your New Testament, but maybe you could pull out your cell phone and look at there. But let's look for a moment at Acts chapter 9. Because Acts chapter 9 is an important cross-reference to what's going on here. In other words, Acts 9 tells us the story as it happens that Paul references here, the story of Paul's conversion. And I just want to read the first few verses of Acts chapter 9. Nine. So if you have your Bible, look there. Acts 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's a metaphor for Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he's traveling, he's planning to bring prisoners back with him. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So Paul doesn't come up with this gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus. We can't change God's gospel. So any attempt to make a culturally acceptable skinny gospel, as we talked about last week, or to add to the gospel, to seek to perfect it, to make a fat gospel, it's futile. Adding to the true gospel changes the gospel. Now, I am not much of a chef, and that's the understatement of the year. But COVID brought out some surprises for my family. You know, we're all locked in, and I'm like, I'll try some things. And so the kids are like, Dad, you're cooking? I'm like, you know, hold your breath. We'll see how this goes. But one thing is, if you're a chef, not like me, but you really know what you're doing, you kind of mix along. If you, if you ever talk to a real chef, a lot of times they can't even tell you their recipe. Because they just kind of figure it out as they go. They taste, and, like, and they're like, oh, I just add a little of this and a little of that. Well, how do you make this? This is delicious. Oh, well, I just do this and this. Well, how much do you put in? Oh, a little bit. But baking is not like cooking. Baking, some people like baking because it's precise. In other words, you can't change the recipe. You can't add a little of this and a little of that. It works in exact amounts. In fact, I remember a time growing up where my sister mixed up the salt and the sugar. No one wants those brownies. They're bad. You can't just mix up ingredients. Baking is precise. Uh, recently, I had a really good burger when I was out, and so uh, we were grilling some burgers at home, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to add, I'm going to grill up an egg, I'll add a little this, a little, and man, whoo, it was good. But you can't do that with baking. You can't just be like, I'm going to add a little of this and, and a little of that. Because baking is exact, it's an exact science, and the gospel works this way too. It doesn't need to be freshened up. You can't add to the gospel or take away from the gospel without changing the gospel. 
You cannot alter it one bit. It's a precise science. So the gospel belongs to Christ, and therefore, through the gospel, Paul is a servant of Christ. Now, we've said that one of Paul's main themes is his apostolic authority. He is a big A apostle, called by Jesus himself, and because of this, he has unique authority that no one else has. So Paul is defending two things. His point is to defend the true gospel. But to defend the gospel, he must also defend his apostleship. Because they're connected, because he's the one preaching this gospel. So some aspects of Paul's life are unique to him, but other aspects are the way the gospel goes to work in any one of us. And we see here the story of Paul's conversion. Now God's word gives us different ways of understanding, different pictures of how the gospel works. And as we have these different pictures, we begin to understand different aspects of how God's grace comes to us. So, for instance, justification. Justification is the act, the legal declaration, whereby God takes someone who should be declared guilty of being a sinner, and he declares them not guilty. He justifies them through the grace of Christ, this this instantaneous legal declaration. Romans 3 walks us through this. This verse was referenced earlier, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So this declares to us that we're all sinners, but the very next verse tells us that God has justified us by his grace as a gift. It's this legal declaration. But that's not the only picture that scripture gives us. We also have imputation. Now, imputation is where God not only declares us innocent, who are not guilty, but then he credits to us all this goodness that we don't deserve. He credits to our account all the riches of Christ. Sometimes we call this the great exchange. This verse also quoted earlier, 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, sin to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, God takes all our sin and he places it on Jesus. And so he looks at Jesus on the cross, he says, guilty. Jesus isn't guilty, but he credits our guilt to him. And then when he does that, he exchanges in its place Christ's righteousness to us and so now he looks at us and not only says not guilty he says rich even though we're poor he credits to us the full righteousness of Christ that's imputation but the picture we're given here is a picture of conversion in Mark 1 when Jesus arrives on the scene he begins preaching the gospel he says repent and believe the gospel Repentance and faith, they're two sides of the same coin. It's a turning from sin and turning to Christ. And that's the story that Paul tells us here, how God converts. He changes a soul. God takes a rebel sinner and he converts our nature. He gives us a new creation, in, makes us a new creation in Christ. He takes rebel sinners and changes who we are. And Paul uses his own life to illustrate what this looks like. Verse 13, Paul describes his former life in Judaism. Now, Paul is a really smart, really gifted guy. If he were here this morning, he could argue any one of us into a corner. Verse 14, he's like, I'm at the top of my class. I'm advancing beyond my peers. But Paul isn't merely gifted. We all know that really talented person who doesn't work hard. 
Paul is gifted and he's passionately zealous. He was extremely zealous for the, for the traditions of his fathers. And he uses this passion to destroy Christians, verse 13. The language he uses is quite strong. I was persecuting the church of God violently and destroying it. He doesn't actually say he was trying to destroy it. He says he was destroying it. He claims in some measure to be actually destroying the church. Now, ultimately, no one can kill the church because it's God's church. And God preserves his church. Paul was persecuting the church of God. Now, it's God's church, and God preserves his church. Brothers and sisters, that was true in the first century, and it's true today. Now, this should give us great encouragement. I do not get all the hand-wringing over what changes around us because there is still a king on the throne. He's an eternal king from beginning to end, the Alpha and Omega, and nothing can ever change that. We don't worry about what the ants do. God doesn't worry about what we do. God reigns eternally. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're in the first century and it's Christians being torn to pieces by animals in a coliseum. It doesn't matter if it's today, halfway around the world, Christians being persecuted in North Korea. And it doesn't matter if you're a Christian businessman in the 21st century in America and they take your business from you. Jesus still reigns. It's God's church. Now, we don't know always God's ways and his mind and how he works, but God preserves his church. Christians and churches, individual local churches may come and go, but God's church will stand forever. And if our time comes to be absent from the body, it's to be present with the Lord. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, this is a man who spent, was about to spend much time in prison. We are in a light, momentary affliction. But it prepares us for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond comparison. This stuff is nothing when you know that king. We live among what is seen, but we live for things that are unseen. This should give us great encouragement. It should also move us to humility. This is the church of God. It's not my church. It's not your church. It is God's church. So, we are simply servants of Christ, seeking to be faithful and humbly submitting to his word and living out the gospel. So we don't own programs. We don't own Sunday school classrooms. We don't own our way of doing things. We're simply servants, longing to glorify our king, seeking to grow in his word. And this changes the way we think. There's a healthy ownership. But there's an unhealthy territorialism. Servants recognize they're stewards of what the king owns. It's his church. So God takes a rebel sinner and makes him a redeemed sinner. 
This is all of God's grace. 2 Corinthians 5.21 describes the results of conversion. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Well, how did God's grace come to Paul? Well, if you track through verses 13 and 14, there is a marked contrast, and it's not unintentional. Verses 13 and 14, my former life, I persecuted the church. I was advancing. I was extremely zealous. That's B.C., before Christ. But in verses 15 and 16, God set me apart. God called me by his grace. God revealed his son to me. You see, grace comes to us when God comes after us. And God's grace came to Paul the way it comes to all of us. Verse 15, when he who has set me apart before I was born. Romans 9 tells us that God's grace came to Jacob this same way, before he was born. Jeremiah chapter 1 tells us God called Jeremiah this way, before you were born I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Ephesians 1 tells us that God calls us to salvation the same way, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So God's word presents truths in tension that we cannot humanly reconcile. And the first of these truths is this, that God's offer of salvation is offered freely to all. Anyone may come. And we are all responsible to repent or believe, to receive or to reject God's free offer of salvation. At the same time, you can't help but read through the scriptures that God is the ultimate cause of all things. The sovereign of the universe. And his choices are not conditioned on anyone else's. Brothers and sisters, scripture never teaches that God looked through the corridors of time, wondered what we would think, saw what we would choose, and then made his choice. That ain't how it works. Either, at the end of the day, God's choices are conditioned on ours, or ours are conditioned on God's. And not only is scripture clear about this, I'm very happy to have God in charge. If you knew me, you'd be happy for that too. So we don't want to insist against scripture and against what we know about ourselves that we should be in charge. But at the same time, we're all attempting to reconcile what is an inhum a humanly irreconcilable mystery. And so to help us out here, we're going to go with our patron saint. Now, Baptists don't have patron saints, but if we did, it'd be Charles Spurgeon. From his sermon, Sovereign Grace and Man's Responsibility, he says, I see in one place God presiding over all in providence. And yet I see, and I cannot help seeing, that man acts as he pleases. And that God has left his actions to his own will in a great measure. That God predestines and that man is responsible are two things that few can see. If then I find taught in one place that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another place that man is responsible for all his actions, that's true. And it's my folly that leads me to imagine that two truths can ever contradict each other. These two truths, he says, I do not believe can ever be welded into one upon any human anvil. But one they shall be in eternity. They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the mind that shall pursue them the farthest 
will never discover that they converge. But they do converge. And they will meet somewhere in eternity close to the throne of God. So Paul's conversion came, as it does for all of us, as Paul encountered Jesus Christ. Acts 9, Paul is walking to capture and bind the Christians. And Jesus appears to him in a blinding light, and for three days, Paul can't see a thing. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul uses this picture to describe how the gospel comes to us. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've heard these words time after time, Jesus died for you. But the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ has never shined into your heart. Perhaps you've heard the words and given mental assent, Jesus died to rescue me from sin. But it's never touched the very core of your being. This process, this thing that Paul Paul talks about here, this conversion, God taking a rebel sinner and transforming you, your nature has never been changed by this good news. You see, it's one thing to hear Jesus died. It's another thing to know Jesus died for me. It's one thing to hear there are sinners in the world. It's another thing to recognize before a holy God that I am a sinner. It's one thing to hear about grace. It's another thing to begin to understand how badly you need grace. That apart from a gift, you cannot be rescued. Oh friend, if you have heard this gospel, this story, but it's never touched your soul, would you turn from sin and trust Jesus? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. God reveals his son to Paul. He called him salvation and also to his apostolic ministry. But one thing that's not evident in a few verses is that there is a good bit of time between Paul's call and his actual entrance into ministry. There's this period of preparation. So we know Paul today, he's a missionary to the Gentiles. Verse 16 tells us that this call to preach Christ to the nations, it's it's the heart of Paul's ministry. He knows it's what he's called to. And Paul now defends his direct revelation from Christ by pointing out that he got this from Jesus, not from anyone else. He wasn't sitting at the feet of the other apostles learning. So Acts 9 tells us that for three days, Paul didn't talk to anyone. He's blind. All he knows is Jesus. But then God sent Ananias to heal his blindness. Now, Paul is on the road to Damascus. Damascus and Jerusalem aren't right next to each other. You look in the south of this picture, you see Jerusalem. As you travel north and east, you see Damascus. So Paul, as he is healed and then he begins this journey, he completes his journey, he begins to teach the gospel. But he doesn't teach it so anyone knows about it. No one knows who Paul is. He's off in nowhere. Damascus, and then you can see to the east there, Arabia. He is out of the limelight for three years. No one really knows what's going on. Now Jesus spent three years with his disciples, preparing them for ministry. 
Now Paul gets his own three-year time of preparation. Kind of cool. So Paul goes into all this detail, and he tells us then that he travels back south to Jerusalem. But he's only there 15 days. He visits with a couple of the apostles, Peter and James, the brother of Jesus. Well, why does Paul go into all of this detail? Because there's this idea that he's just riding the coattails of the real apostles. He's just taking their words and parroting them. But Paul says, nope, I met Jesus face to face. And even when I did see the apostles, it was after three years, and I only spent a little bit of time with them. So he's saying, I am a true apostle preaching the true gospel. Was Paul comes to know Christ, his reputation changes. I mean, imagine this, that you have spent three years walking with Christ, kind of off in Never Never Land, but you're still known as a Christian killer. I mean, the churches in Judea don't know the new Paul. What was Paul doing the last time they saw him? Holding coats while everyone stoned Stephen. But they do begin to hear rumors. Verse 23, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy So remarkably, Paul's been stuck up here, the apostles have been down here, and they're preaching the same message. You see, his point is, he didn't receive it from man, he received it from Jesus himself. So even though they're a long way away, and they're not talking to each other, they're preaching the same gospel. Yet as the Christians in Jerusalem hear bits and pieces of this, they begin to praise God for the fruit of the gospel In Paul's life, the result of this work is that the church glorified God because of me, Paul says. The fruit of the gospel for Paul was that people saw Paul, saw the change in his life, and glorified God because the Spirit had worked in his life through the gospel. You see, life before Christ and life after Christ don't look the same. God changes hearts through the gospel. He can take a desperately wicked man a desperately wicked woman and change their heart and he does this for churches too he takes the nature of communities and he changes those natures now one of the strongest encouragements in this passage is implied rather than stated explicitly so paul's the missionary to the gentiles now there are drips of gospel fruit among the nations before paul so For instance, in Acts chapter 8, we have Philip going and witnessing to the Ethiopian eunuch. So there are drips. But in terms of any concerted effort to reach the nations, in terms of the gospel digging down deep and spreading globally, Paul's the one who does that. Well, how long does it take Paul to start doing that? So we already know Paul sits off kind of in isolation for three years, waiting for this mission. But that tells us only part of the story. Paul is saved sometime probably around A.D. 33, and it's not until A.D. 47 that he goes on his first missionary journey. Now, you may not be good at math, but that's 14 years. So for 14 years, the gospel is spreading to the Gentiles just in a trickle. Drips. In terms of strategic, intentional, robust gospel advance, It's not something we see until Acts chapter 13 when the church sends out Paul and Barnabas. It's a decade, more than a decade after Jesus dies. I mean, think about the people that didn't hear the gospel in those 14 years. That could have heard. You need God's providence 
This was God's design to grow his church. So how is it that God grows the church? Through the word, prayer, fellowship, baptism, communion. These ordinary means of grace grow believers who grow the church. We can know that God's word never returns to him empty. Now we have this vision for how God works. We speak it and it happens. That is not what God promises. Isaiah 55 says, His word will not return to him empty, but it will accomplish that which he pleases. Now I've got an idea, but I'm not in charge. So he does it in his time and in his way. So we practice the word. We live out God's word in prayer. We lean into relationships with people. But we do all of this with patience. It may be that God has a plan for the rapid growth of our church. But our vision isn't to be a church of 500 or a church of 1,000. Our vision is to be a healthy body of Christ. Believers rooted in the gospel, growing in faith in Christ's likeness. And then praying and seeing God add to the church as he wills. Sometimes, and I know they're being encouraging and I appreciate it. Sometimes people say things like, you're going to fill these seats. And I got to admit, I'm happier when they're full than when they're empty. But filling seats has never been my goal. Our goal is for the people under our care to be growing in the word and then sharing the word faithfully with those around them. We want to be faithful, people growing in the word and sharing the word. And as we share it with those who don't know God, we watch God at work. And brothers and sisters, God is at work. I mean, it's just like the first sprouts, the first seeds with a little bud coming out, But more and more frequently, we see the early sprouts of God's spirit at work. People saying things like, God is using his word to change me. God is leading me through his word to repent specifically of this sin. I'm beginning to know Christ like I've never known him. I'm seeing God's word like I've never seen it before. I, when I walk out of here, I'm spending time with this book. I'm spending time talking to the Savior. Brothers and sisters, that is the fruit of the gospel at work. And we rejoice that God is doing his work. And so we lead into God's word and watch God work. So let's take a moment now and respond to God's work through his word. In repentance and faith, I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.
God, I thank you that you work through your work. We see it in a life of a rebel sinner like Paul, and we see it in our own rebel hearts too. Lord, would you take your word and dig it down deep into our lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.